It used to be that they were hair loss, obese, with acne, not getting their period, and infertile. And mm-hmm. I'll dive into infertility. But you can you can be somebody who is not obese, right, and doesn't have the excess facial hair growth and so on, and still have PCOS because it's internal. And if you look at their hormones and you look at their insulin resistance and you look at those metabolic parameters, they're still abnormal, even though physically appearing, they don't appear that way. Hi, I'm Dr. Morgan Nolte, founder of Zivli. As a geriatric physical therapist, I saw the heartbreaking effects of insulin resistance. At Zivli, our mission is to help you prevent and reverse insulin resistance for long-term weight loss and disease prevention through a low insulin and inflammation lifestyle. Each week on this podcast, you'll learn simple, actionable tips to lose weight, keep it off, and get healthy. If you're ready to create a body and life you love, you're in the right place. Let's get started. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Reshape Your Health podcast. I am so excited to introduce you to Dr. Suzanne Fenske today. She is a double board certified gynecologist and integrative medical doctor. She specializes in hormone therapy for perimenopause and menopause, SOLA for pelvic pain, and functional medicine for a range of gynecological conditions, including endometriosis and polycystic ovarian syndrome. She is also a North American Menopause Society certified provider. We have a really fun conversation for you today. If you're watching on YouTube, we're both like really rocking the red. So (laughs) we did not intentionally plan to match today, but we did. And we're going to really cover perimenopause and menopause sleep issues, um, pain with intercourse issues, and then also focusing on PCOS and endometriosis. So it's going to be a wide range of women's health topics today. But before we get into all of that, I always love asking the the guest, what is your story? So why did you get into medicine? What makes you so passionate about women's health? Thank you for having me today. Um, So yeah, I mean, I always knew I wanted to be a physician. That was an easy one for me. I knew from as a child and I actually got into medical school when I was 17. I applied to medical school then. Um, Actually, the hard part was choosing my specialty. And it wasn't really until kind of the end of my third year of medical school when I had to choose what I was going to apply for for residency. Uh, And I was I was between two very drastically different fields. I was between plastic surgery Um, because my type A OCD personality really enjoyed that aspect of things and, and OBGYN. And ultimately, you know, I had a really good piece of advice and the piece of advice was pick something that you can imagine day in and day out talking about, reading about, learning about. Um, And that's what kind of flipped the switch for me. I was like, well, definitely OBGYN. I just love women's health. So I ended up going into OBGYN. Things got a little bit more uh, interesting because then once I did my OBGYN residency, uh, I decided to do a fellowship in laparoscopic and robotic surgery. So I did that two-year fellowship and stayed on at at an academic practice and specialized a lot in pelvic pain and endometriosis, um, and did a lot of surgery. And then as I was doing the surgery and dealing with these women with chronic pelvic pain issues, I sort of felt that things weren't being handled correctly. Like there's, they just shouldn't be having five or six laparoscopic surgeries for endometriosis. And what are we missing, right? Why aren't we addressing all these other issues that women have concurrently? Uh, which is which I why I ended up doing a two-year fellowship in integrative medicine under Dr. Andrew Weil, which was very much life-changing and gave me more of a comprehensive approach to gynecological issues. 
And then I ended up doing functional medicine because I kind of wanted to really evaluate root cause analysis for a lot of the issues that we experience. Okay. My first question for that is, can you explain the differences between integrative medicine and functional medicine for people that might not understand fully those similarities and differences? Yeah. So there there is some overlap between the two fields, but essentially integrative medicine looks at evidence-based modalities for um, therapies and management of diseases. Uh, So it's not, you know, it's utilizing traditional medicine, right? Using your medications, your surgeries and all those things, but adding in evidence-based modalities such as mind-body therapy, supplements, botanicals um, to really augment care and augment results and make things better. Functional really looks at root cause analysis. So doing the right testing, really getting down to, well, why, why, why do you have, even generally speaking, why do you have acne, right? Why do you have, you know, constipation and really get down to the root cause of what's going on? Mm -hmm. Okay. I love that root cause level. Um, We were talking offline that I feel like there's a huge gap in traditional medicine when it comes to that general health education, getting down to the root cause. Um, and I wanted to start this conversation with some of those root cause things, starting with PCOS. So mm-hmm. we're going to start kind of on that lifespan continuum. Usually, um, actually I have it right here. Usually people with PCOS find out, what would you say? Their twenties, their thirties. When is it usually diagnosed? Yeah. Twenties, thirties usually. Okay. So I had a letter and I have the envelope here. Actually, the letter's not in it. Someone wrote me a letter. Um, I think they found me on YouTube or the podcast. And she said, I was diagnosed with PCOS in my twenties. Mm-hmm. And I, that was like over 20 years ago, decades ago. And she's been struggling with her weight ever since. Mm-hmm. And she was like, had I understood this information that you were teaching now about insulin resistance, I would not have had decades of struggle with my weight. So I think it's really important, even though we focus on adults over 50, I'm a geriatric physical therapist by trade. I have a passion for lifelong health. I think the sooner you take um, full responsibility and ownership and change those health habits, the better. So let's start with maybe women in their thirties that might be getting the, the PCOS diagnosis, the endometriosis diagnosis, what is PCOS and what are some of the root causes of it? So PCOS is a horrible name for what it is. <laughs> so it, it stands for polycystic ovarian syndrome. And essentially, you know, it was named based on a sonographic appearance of the ovaries, which even that's a misnomer because they're not cysts. Technically, greater than two centimeters is a cyst. And these are usually less than two centimeters. It's actually just having multiple, multiple follicles on the ovaries. And there used to be kind of this old school expression where it would look like a string of pearls on the ovaries. Uh, And it was assumed to be a gynecological issue when in fact, it's really not a gynecological issue. It's really an endocrinological issue, right? It's like, you know, the equivalent of having, not the equivalent, but things like diabetes and and hypothyroidism, it's really falls more into endocrinology Um, where it manifests and why it became a gynecology focused issue is because of its effects on the menstrual cycle. So essentially, women generally have symptoms of oligomenorrhea, which means that they're infrequently getting their period. Um, And they're infrequently getting their period because they're not ovulating. So due to this sort of endocrinology of it and due to the metabolic, which we'll go into, of it, 
women will not ovulate. And when women don't ovulate, the second part of our cycle, we get our progesterone from the corpus luteal cyst, which is the cyst that you form when a woman ovulates. So if they don't ovulate, they're not forming that corpus luteal, or if they're not ovulating well, they're not forming a good corpus luteal, which is not producing that progesterone to support the second part of the cycle. And if they're not supporting the second part of the cycle, then you sort of have this this basically this imbalance of hormones where kind of from a ratio standpoint, a woman has a lot more estrogen in her body than she does progesterone in her body. And if they're not ovulating, then they're not going to get a period. And that's why that sort of symptomatology goes along with it. But unfortunately, like I said, it really is more endocrine. And with that, we will see some adrenal issues And there's kind of a different working theories as to what the cause of PCOS is. And some PCOS actually comes from adrenal dysfunction first and foremost. Um, And with that, you will often see symptoms that have androgen excess. So women will have hair loss on their head, hair growth in places they don't want hair growth. Um, And due to the metabolic, oftentimes insulin resistance is an issue, prediabetes, diabetes, thyroid dysfunction, high cholesterol, all together in one uh, manifestation of symptoms. Mm-hmm. And so you said sometimes adrenal issues can be a root cause, but what are the cause of the adrenal issues? So stress, right? Stress becomes a major cause of, of, uh, of issues. And, you know, sometimes women were just chronic stress, right? Like life is just a lot, school, graduate school during this age, um, the stress of finding a job and figuring things out, the stress of how they're conducting their lives, right? So a lot of women aren't doing what it takes for self-care wise to really be able to navigate stress. Yeah. So what do you think is a, um, a common course of care for someone who has these symptoms of PCOS, which you only mentioned, you mentioned a few, some yeah. metabolic abnormalities like high blood sugar, high cholesterol, perhaps some high blood pressure, um, irregular cycles. What are the other symptoms of PCOS that might spur someone to talk to their OBG about it, OBGYN about it? Yeah. So, you know, it could be from sort of an aesthetic standpoint, acne becomes an issue, hair loss becomes an issue, weight gain, they're in difficulty losing weight and getting on top of weight can be an issue. There used to be this classic old school manifestation of what a PCOS woman is, which I try to avoid really harping on because it's not what all PCOS women look like and have, right? So it used to be that they were hair loss, obese, with acne, not getting their period, and infertile. And I'll Mm -hmm. dive into infertility. But you can You can be somebody who is not obese, right, and doesn't have the excess facial hair growth and so on and still have PCOS because it's internal. And if you look at their hormones and you look at their insulin resistance and you look at those metabolic parameters, they're still abnormal, even though physically appearing, they don't appear that way. Fertility becomes an issue too, because like I said, if you're not ovulating, then it's very difficult to get pregnant. Um, So another oftentimes, unfortunately, is a lot of times PCOS is diagnosed during a infertility workup. And that's the reason why they finally get that diagnosis of PCOS. Because as you know, a lot of times these metabolic things are not evaluated in your 20s and 30s. You have no idea that you have insulin resistance. You have no idea you have thyroid dysfunction because that's something that's tested more in our 40s and 50s and beyond. Right. Yeah. They might not have the full-blown manifestation of type 2 diabetes um, and need metformin, but there's some serious metabolic stuff going on in the background that just isn't to that level of being clinically diagnosed yet. 
So perhaps it's the difficulty losing weight. Perhaps it's like the, the hair loss, perhaps it's infertility. And so someone with PCS goes to a regular doctor and the doctor says what that perhaps isn't very helpful. Uh, well, often, unfortunately, the doctor says that this is all a result of, of too much weight and you have to lose weight, right? Not giving them a solution, not giving them a root cause analysis. And most women are like, well, I've been trying to lose weight. <laughs> this is what I've been trying to do. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's kind of, you know, a, a chicken and the egg type of situation. And it's, and it's not helpful. Is birth control ever prescribed for uh, PCOS or other hormones? Yes. So it usually is honestly the first line of therapy that most physicians will provide for management of PCOS. And unfortunately, oftentimes they don't address the rest of the metabolic issues that go along with PCOS. Yeah. Honestly, depending on where you are in your life, if you're in your twenties and you have no desire to conceive and you need contraception, there's nothing wrong necessarily with choosing a birth control pill as an option to help navigate your PCOS. If you're still doing the work to get down to the root cause and the solutions behind it. Um, but if you're somebody who doesn't want to be on a birth control pill, there's plenty of natural ways and lifestyle modifications that can address PCOS without having to use a birth control pill. Yeah. So my next question is, can it be fully reversed? Like, is it possible to develop fully normal cycles, not have infertility, not have difficulty with your weight, uh, regrow your hair? Is it possible to fully reverse it? Or is this something that we more so manage with lifestyle? Yeah. So on a, on a personal note, I actually have PCOS. Uh, And uh, it is something that's kind of, I like to say it's, it's part of you right? It's always going to be part of you. You have to learn how to navigate your body and you have to learn what needs to be done to make, to make it not an issue in your life, even though it's part of your life. Um, So it's not something that you can theoretically, you know, for lack of a better word, cure, right? It is something you can absolutely reverse. Okay. And what did you do? And then what do you help your patients do? So what are those natural, maybe lifestyle changes that really help reverse the condition? So, you know, like probably most of the women who have it and like my patients, initially I was put on a birth control pill and that was, that was it. That was the solution to the issue. I was getting, you know, a fake period every single month and therefore it was deemed that I'm, you know, I'm fine. I'm cured. Um, And then as I got more into medicine and so on, and even then, even at a young point, I'm like, well, something's wrong here. We're masking this, right. But we're not actually getting down to the root cause. So you know, definitely a good, healthy exercise regimen was one of the things that I employed combining both, um, strength training as well as cardio, as well as, uh, yoga. I mean, yoga was a big thing for me for sort of stress management, um, having a routine in regards to stress management. So I do personally meditate, um, and also do yoga a few times a week as well and breath work daily. (laughs) Um, and then from a nutritional standpoint, because, um, my, my hemoglobin A1C was fine. My fasting insulin actually was suboptimal. And this was stuff that I worked up on my own because no physician really did it for me. Um, and most physicians will only look at hemoglobin A1C, which can take 10 years, as you know, to turn abnormal. So I actually on my own fasting insulin and then modified my diet. Right. And really, you know, got down to whole foods, healthy foods, um, carbohydrates that were complex and pairing them appropriately with protein and fat and not just having carbohydrates on their own. Um, 
I'm not saying that if you have PCOS, you need to be a ketogenic diet. You just want to learn how to have carbs and have them in a healthy way that work for you. For some women, actually, I will recommend even doing a CGM, a continuous yeah. glucose monitor, um, which I think that PCOS is a wonderful person who should do a CGM because you're going to learn that your body doesn't necessarily respond to the way that somebody else's body is going to respond to certain foods. And you're able to learn your body because the key to PCOS, and this is what I tell my patients is you just need to learn what works for your body and how to work with your body. And then it is never an issue in your life. No issues with fertility. Um, Again, as you know, I, I had two children. <laughs> uh, I had no issues getting pregnant, even though I had PCOS. And I actually had my children, not late, but a little later in life. Um, my first pregnancy was 35 years old. So, I, and I like to focus on that with my patients too, because I think that that's the scariest aspect for PCOS often is the assumption and that, that fertility is going to be an issue and that you'll never be able to conceive if you want to conceive. Yep. And I think that so often that whole conversation that you just had, which was a beautiful explanation of lifestyle changes, uh, appropriate exercise program, appropriate diet, stress management. I think that sleep really goes into that as well. I'm sure you do too, with the stress management, reducing your cortisol levels that all is missed so often. And I think it's hard to give unsolicited advice for someone that has PCOS. So I'm so glad that you said that. So now when I meet someone who has PCOS and like, I'm really struggling with this, I can just be like, Hey, listen to this interview. Um, Cause I think that's what I want this to be as a resource for someone. Um, Now with PCOS, then do you develop normal periods as you make those lifestyle changes? Oftentimes? Yes. Sometimes I use, um, supplements and botanicals to kind of aid in regulating a cycle um, and even just to judiciously use them, right? So even in, even in the instance of insulin resistance, sometimes I'll add on a supplement in conjunction with a dietary modification to at least stop those glucose spikes that women are having. There are also supplements you can use to help kind of balance the hormones and keep them in check. And some women will kind of cycle through these supplements, come on, come off for periods of six months or so. And, uh, and that can really help them achieve their, their goals and the regulation. And I'm hesitant to ask this because I don't want someone to hear it. And then all of a sudden go self-prescribe these botanicals and supplements. We really suggest that you run everything by your doctor, but what are some of your go-to supplements for, let's say insulin resistance or to regulate a, um, a woman's cycle? Yeah. So I, 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 I completely agree with you and it's really personalized. And I will say that when I choose my supplements and my botanicals, it's based on lab work. It's based on possibly additional testing that's done to some functional testing that might be done as well. So, but, but in general, kind of a few things that are in my armamentarium, I use um, for hormonal balances, I'll consider using uh, chase barrier or vitex. I'll consider using dim, um, I'll consider using CDG, calcium deglucurate, different things, different in relations to the hormone balancing in relation to sort of the insulin and glucose. There's things like berberine you may consider using inositol and sometimes, you know, metformin too, if necessary as well. And those are, a few. yeah, sorry. Yeah. Those are just a few. There's a lot of options and you do want to focus on the adrenals too, right? So you may need some adaptogens to help the adrenals kind of perform and navigate. Yes. Now, will you just touch really briefly before we move on 
why are the adrenals so important to address with PCOS? What is it hormonally that can get thrown off if there's too much stress in a woman's life? Yeah. So there's three different phases of kind of adrenal dysfunction, right? So the first phase of adrenal dysfunction is when there's stress and elevated levels of cortisol. Well, cortisol in and of itself actually is one issue. So if you have elevated levels of cortisol, um, then cortisol obviously is going to lead to more insulin resistance and it becomes more of that, you know, fat storage hormone. I do want to stop and say that cortisol is incredibly important. You need cortisol too. You yeah. just want to have optimal ranges of cortisol um, because cortisol is our fight or flight hormone. So we do need it to be able to get up and go and go about life and, and actually have a stress response. You want a stress response, but too much cortisol can lead to insulin resistance and actually can feed back and affect your hormones, right? So all our hormones come from the mother hormone pregnenolone. And so that pregnenolone is used to make your estrogen, your progesterone, your testosterone, and your cortisol, and so on, right? Both sides, your sex hormones, your adrenal hormones. And if you're shunting all that pregnenolone over to really make cortisol, then you're depleting it in making sex hormones. So it becomes this vicious circle again, basically, in the PCOS world, when you're usually not making enough progesterone. So it exacerbates those symptoms. There's also a hormone called DHEA that's produced by the adrenal glands. And it's a precursor to androgens and to, um, and to estrogen too. It actually converts to estrogen as well. And that's produced by the adrenal glands, not the ovaries. So if you're in a state of adrenal kind of upregulation, your body's in high cortisol, the initial stage also is to have high DHEA too. So if you're someone who has PCOS and you have these androgenic symptoms, right? These androgens too much in your body and you have the acne and the hair loss, um, then elevated DHEA is going to exacerbate those symptoms as well. Okay. Thank you for clarifying that. We've talked about pregnenolone on the podcast before, but it's been a while. So in case there were any new listeners that didn't know about that, mm -hmm. I wanted them to. Um, I think this is a really hopeful conversation. I know that one barrier to change is feeling like people have to do everything at once. Um, mm -hmm. They might've heard those lifestyle factors and thought, oh my gosh, I'm not doing any of that. I'm eating a, a crap diet. I'm not sleeping. I'm staying up late studying. I'm really stressed out. My relationship is, this can cause relational issues. Let's be real. Infertility is stressful in a relationship. So that can be added on. Um, they might just be getting started in a career. So if you had to give people advice on the, the first, maybe the first best step that they could take to prioritize implementation, what would you say? So I would say that, you know, in general, right. In all things that I recommend is that I think that most of us are kind of like, yeah, you know, here's all this information. I'm going to take it. I'm going to implement it all right now. And you're kind of setting yourself up for failure because it really is about the small steps to get where you want to be and the end results. And the end result doesn't have to be in a week, right? Although all of us want that end result in a week or, you know, a day, depending on who you are. But I think that you start off with small steps. And I think that kind of a good place to start in regards to PCOS initially is really the stress management one. And you start with stress management mm -hmm. and it allows you to navigate and work through everything else and not be overwhelmed by the next step. Totally. And yeah. And the next step hopefully might be actually sleep and prioritizing sleep and making sleep better. And I know you're in your mind, you're like, well, I'm not getting, 
I'm not getting to the, the goods, like the real stuff, right? But you are because you can't navigate your nutrition changes, your exercise changes, your lifestyle changes if you are exhausted <laughs> and stressed out. So those are probably the first two steps before jumping into the nutrition component and the exercise component. So you didn't know this, but I 100% agree. We call it <laughs> our Zivoli habit hierarchy. And right at the top there is our mindset work. Like your daily mindset work for stress management looks different for everyone. I think hydration is in there and then sleep. Like, so pretty much just stress management, sleep right at the top. You're exactly right. You have to have that bandwidth, that emotional and mental bandwidth to implement lifestyle changes. So I love that you said that. I wanted to move on before we move on. Is there anything else about PCOS you think is uh, important to share here before we talk about endometriosis? Um, I think it's important to also kind of really stay on top of doing, you know, advocating for yourself for lab work periodically to really follow up because you may be very fortunate and not have any of those metabolic issues present early on, but you're more at risk for it. So really staying on top of it, regardless of your age, regardless of being 24 years old with PCOS. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. Um, so moving on from PCOS to endometriosis, which is an, I feel like a very common condition. I have several friends with endometriosis. Um, so what is endometriosis? Let's start there. Yeah. So, um, it is right now they're saying one in 10 women have endometriosis. It's probably actually an underestimation. Um, the big issue with endometriosis is that it takes a long time to get the diagnosis. There's a long delay on average. It takes, you know, five to seven years to get a diagnosis of endometriosis. And most people see three to five physicians before they get that diagnosis. Um, but endometriosis is basically a disease of estrogen and inflammation. And there's um, kind of mixed theories as to the cause or etiology of endometriosis. But basically, when you have this sort of um, these cells that actually implant in other places in your body, and endometriosis can be in anywhere in your body. I've had patients have it in their lungs. I've had patients have it in their nose and they would manifest by having monthly nosebleeds and they would manifest by having these monthly actually um, collapsing of the lungs because of the blood that would build up in the cavity. Uh, and those are the more rare ones, right? More traditionally endometriosis manifests as very painful periods, uh, as well as having pain throughout the month and otherwise, or pain with intercourse and usually more pain with deep penetration inter intercourse. And, um, and it is a disease of inflammation, which is kind of something that, that doesn't get focused on as much. So, yeah. yeah. So you, you navigate the hormones, right. With modern technology, medications, birth control pills, so on, but you really want to navigate the inflammation too. And unfortunately, endometriosis, um, likes to buddy up with lots of other disorders too. So oftentimes a woman who has endometriosis will have autoimmune disorders, um, we'll also have, um, gastrointestinal disorders like IBS, um, or irritable bowel syndrome. And oftentimes we'll have bladder dysfunction too. So there's a uh, conditions called bladder pain syndrome and specifically one type is interstitial cystitis. So that often comes with, uh, with endometriosis as well, as well as pelvic floor, as you know, um, dysfunction and pain and myalgia that comes along with endometriosis as well. I'm really curious, aside from inflammation, is there any other link that you have identified as to why someone might have some more uh, other common conditions? Like you said, the GI stuff, 
Um, I'm just thinking the audio, the autoimmune with endometriosis aside from the inflammation. There's more and more research coming out regarding genetics and there's a genetic component to it, which puts more at risk for those things. Okay. Is the prevalence increasing? We know the prevalence of like obesity, metabolic dysfunction is increasing. Is the prevalence of endometriosis increasing? So far, still sticking to the same number of one in 10, but honestly, as obesity increase, obesity, um, does actually exacerbate endometriosis symptoms because we know that the fat cells produce estrogen in and of itself. So you're getting estrogen production from the ovaries, right? You're getting estrogen production from the fat cells and then estrogen production from the actual endometriosis too. So it's, again, I feel like I keep saying this term, but it's a vicious circle in that more and more uh, estrogen is produced and more and more symptoms and worsening of endometriosis occurs. And with obesity too, I mean, I kind of hate that term because the rock is obese. (laughs) You can, that is kind of a silly measure, but excess body fat is really what we're talking about here. Um, that can release inflammatory substances as well. So it's releasing estrogen and inflammation, like inflammatory substances. So if excess inflammation and excess estrogen is really kind of one of the root causes for endometriosis, that's kind of a double-edged sword to have excess body fat. What would be some of the traditional things that medicine would say to someone that has endometriosis? So the mainstays have always been, you know, first and foremost, try a birth control pill. Um, And the theory behind that is that if you're turning off the ovaries and just giving the hormones that you need basically to non, you know, uh, at minimal level and keeping a steady state of hormones, you're not having those fluctuations of estrogen. You're not relying on your body's, you know, kind of uptick in its own production of estrogen. There are other medications that are used. There's GNRH antagonist and agonists. And basically these medications kind of shut down the whole access of hormones. And the newer ones, the GNRH antagonists actually don't shut down completely. The GNRH agonists do shut down completely to basically be at menopausal level of hormones. The GNRH um, antagonists are a little bit more modified and they come down to be just kind of above menopausal levels so that the side effects, you know, that are menopausal, right? Your hot flashes, your night sweats, brain fog are not as significant. The issue being that these medications kind of have a limited period of time that you can be on them, not the birth control pill, but the GnRH agonists and antagonists. Uh, And then another kind of common approach to it is surgical, surgical intervention to remove the endometriosis. And if someone comes to you with endometriosis, how is your approach different? So I will still use those modalities if needed, mm-hmm. uh, but I believe in a whole person approach to it. So I will focus on, again, optimizing my pillars. My pillars that I use are sleep, stress management, nutrition, exercise, and really optimizing those factors in it. Um, judicious use again of supplements, botanicals, if needed to kind of decrease the inflammation. And even in regards to kind of a nutrition approach, I really emphasize an anti-inflammatory diet. Um, and really cutting out that, which is personally inflammatory, right? Like for some people, right? Gluten is inflammatory for some people, dairy is inflammatory. So really zeroing in on that and making them more in tune with their body and their response to different food groups. And sometimes even doing, you know, uh, elimination diets to see if their symptoms are improved on that. And then, you know, unfortunately any sort of chronic pain, um, state, which is what endometriosis is, you really want to 
decrease or downsize that central sensitization syndrome that comes on, which means that when somebody's in pain constantly, it's just becomes worse and worse and worse. And basically things that normally aren't that painful become super painful according to them because their their neurons are firing, firing, firing constantly. So really focusing on that to kind of really bring it down. So mind-body therapies are huge in regards to that really important. Um, And even kind of navigating some, some women don't want to be on those traditional medications. They don't like the side effect profile that they have with it. So sometimes even just using, you know, bioidentical progesterone, if they need that to really offset the endometriosis. Do you ever address xenotoxins? I was, when you were talking about diet, soy came to mind um, because, you know, will you speak on that? Or if, if you usually recommend that they reduce their soy intake, if perhaps, perhaps they're vegan or vegetarian and they were using soy to get protein, what's kind of your opinion on that? Yeah, I don't generally recommend reducing soy intake. I absolutely do re- recommend being more aware of endocrine disruptors in general and what they're using and what they're putting on their skin, their body and their body um, and uh, sort of avoiding those kind of standards. But as for soy, you know, it would take so much consumption of soy to really have that estrogenic effect. Okay. So not so much reducing soy, definitely reducing the um, will you say it again? Endocrine disruptors. disruptors yeah. Okay. The endocrine disruptors. I know like perfume is one of them. So I stopped wearing perfume. I try to get kind of unscented things. What are some other major ones that you've tried to work out of your own lifestyle and that you recommend that your clients work, you know, to reduce or eliminate? Yeah. So I cut out all plastic, which yeah. was a big one for me. Um, even my, um, uh, even in my office, actually, I don't use, uh, I, you know, I have water obviously in the waiting room, but I use, um, not water in plastic bottles, not mini bottles, you know, so glass and box water, all that's fine. Um, but cutting out plastics is a really big one. And then really, you know, trying to buy organic as much as possible, USDA certified organic, but paying attention to sort of the, specifically the jury doesn't, right? Because organic does get expensive. So for a lot of people telling them to always buy all organic is incredibly costly. So at least focusing in on kind of the core things that should definitely be organic. So, you know, your fruits that don't have, you know, skins on them that you can peel off, right? I mean, if you're going to choose between do I buy organic strawberries or do I buy organic bananas, then, you know, choosing the organic uh, strawberries because the bananas, at least you're peeling off the peel. Mm Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So those are some really good tips there. The plastics, uh, the dirty dozen. I don't have those off the top of my head. I know berries are one. Do you, do you know any off the top of your head for the dirty berries, berries, um, all the berries actually, um, uh, leafy greens. Um, yeah, I have to keep them and bring all the rest of them, but yeah, I know people can just Google dirty dozen. What are the dirty dozen? And those are kind of, if you're going to prioritize your organic budget, go for that. Um, we're actually moving to the farm in the summer. And so we're planting raspberry bushes. We're planting blackberry bushes. There's already strawberries planted, a couple peach trees. We're going to do some apple trees, um, a huge garden. And I'm so excited about that. I'm really excited to kind of, um, I hope it works. I have a really, I, I don't have a green thumb, so I'm going to try really hard to keep this stuff alive. Your children um, will love that. <laughs> yeah, they, they will. Um, okay. Anything else regarding endometriosis? We talked about some of the treatments, which is similar to PCOS. And um, there's a theme here, guys, like <laughs> the, these basic lifestyle changes are so important, but is endometriosis something that can be reversed or is it like PCOS where it's always a part of you? It's just, how are you managing it? 
Yeah. I mean, it's always a part of you. Um, and it's something you have to even pay attention to in menopause, right? So if you're, we're, we're always taught that the cure for endometriosis is menopause, right? Um, unfortunately, if you are someone who goes through menopause and you decide to go on menopause hormone therapy, and um, say you had a hysterectomy for your endometriosis and your doctor's like, well, you know, you're good to go. We'll put you on some estrogen. It'll be great. Manage your symptoms. And now your endometriosis is an issue anymore. And unfortunately, if you are not put on progesterone, then giving your body that estrogen alone by itself, naked estrogen, then the issue being that you can actually bring back your endometriosis symptoms, even That's if really you have a hysterectomy. So and it I is a long thing. Okay. Lifelong thing. It's so fascinating when you said it could be in your nose uh, yeah. or your lungs. I mean, I knew it could be, I knew it could travel, but I just thought it would travel within the reproductive tract. Do you have any idea how someone would get endometriosis in their nose? We're not quite certain the, the exact etiology of endometriosis. There's some thoughts as to whether it's, you know, like a lymphatic spread or whether it's um, solemic metaplasia, which basically means that the the stem cells or the cells that um, create everything else can differentiate into anything, right? So not 100% certain. Really interesting. So that was a good takeaway for someone going through menopause, either surgical or natural, not to take naked estrogen, but to have some progesterone with it. Any other tips on um, dealing with treating, um, reducing the symptoms of the endometriosis? Yeah, I think that again, really focusing in on lifestyle, getting adequate sleep, it's very hard to navigate that. Um, and, you know, it's very, very, very common to have depression and anxiety, right, with any sort of chronic pain syndrome, but especially with endometriosis. And I think that there's this stigma attached to it, and people don't want to be categorized into them. So it kind of goes untreated. And it's something that should be treated. And I'm not saying treated with medications, right, treated with therapy, treated with other modalities, too, if that's what you prefer. Um, but, but if you are in chronic pain and you do have depression and anxiety, that's unmanaged then the pain is so much worse. Yeah. I like that you, I don't remember how you worded it, but you talked about that cognitive side of it, that, that centralization of pain. So any pain can feel bigger. I think that that's a really important point too. Um, so kind of going into that stigma vein, we were talking about painful intercourse. Mm -hmm. Um, obviously that's one with endometriosis, but you also said it can be a sign of, or a symptom of perimenopause kind of moving into menopause. So I think yeah. that's a nice segue to take us into that. We work with a lot of women in their forties, fifties, sixties. Many of our clients have, are post menopausal. Um, mm -hmm. but I love talking about perimenopause because I think, I mean, I'm going to be there in probably like 10 or 15 years. And I'm so glad that I know that when I'm experiencing these symptoms, I'm not going crazy. <laughs> I'm just going through perimenopause. Um, so can you help us differentiate what is the quote unquote normal aging as someone goes through their forties and fifties? And then what are some signs of more severe hormone imbalances that we might want to be discussing with our physician to get some treatment? Yeah. So, uh, well, you may start it actually earlier than you think you're going to start it. <laughs> I might. Yeah, I might. What are some like the earliest you've seen? Yeah. So the, the average age of menopause in the United States is 51. Um, normal menopause is anywhere between 40 and 60. Uh, most people go through it 45 to 55 in our country, but I will say that menopausal or perimenopausal symptoms can start actually 10 to 13 years ahead of menopause. Right. So for you, yeah. average age is 51, that's putting you into your late thirties to yeah. start 
and symptoms. Oftentimes the earlier perimenopausal symptoms are just not, not known, right? And women aren't um, attributing it to perimenopause. So what happens is that this kind of brings us back to PCOS in a way. What happens is that ovulation starts to become an issue, right? In late thirties, forties, mid forties. Um, and with that, again, progesterone is secreted by the corpus luteal cyst that's created with ovulation. So when that becomes dysregulated, when, when ovulation is not as good, you know, when egg quality is not as great anymore and ovulation is just not as robust or as frequent, then progesterone levels drop down. And this is pretty significant in early perimenopause. Progesterone levels are going to drop down and this can happen again in your late thir late thirties, um, or early forties or up till mid forties with that drop in progesterone, a woman is still getting her cycle regularly. Um, so in kind of the standard of what we created in our country, and no one thinks this is perimenopause because I'm getting my cycle regularly. So this is just, you know, difficult life, right? This is just adulting, um, <laughs> during this time of adulting, uh, often women will experience, you know, heavier periods that will come. And a lot of times these, these, gynecological issues will, will rear their ugly head, right? I mean, you'll, you'll have patients who have endometriosis, their endometriosis is getting much worse during this time. Women who have fibroids and their fibroids are growing during this time. And that's all because you don't have enough progesterone anyway to offset or balance out the estrogen. What other women will experience, as I mentioned, was heavier periods, but also worsening PMS, weight gain, breast tenderness, irritability, some women I say, I speak to me and say, I have rage. <laughs> I am raging. <laughs> and all of this is because progesterone isn't just exists in our body to balance out estrogen. It has its own benefits. And many of those benefits is that it actually will, you know, one progesterone component is alpha pregnenediol, and that actually crosses the blood brain barrier and interacts with the GABA receptors in our brain. So what else do we know that interacts with the GABA receptors in our brain? So sleep medications interact with the GABA receptors in our brains. Uh, benzodiazepines act, interact with the GABA receptors in our brains. And the point of that is that it helps with sleep progesterone. It helps calm you down. It helps with anxiety. So oftentimes that early perimenopausal changes is because of that lack of progesterone. And then as you get to later perimenopause, which we're all much more knowledgeable about and well versed in is now you have estrogen declining and estrogen deficiency. And during that time, skipping cycles, the hot flashes, the night sweats, the vaginal dryness, the dry skin, the change in body odor, the body aches because estrogen acts as an anti-inflammatory in the joints. And these are all kind of, yes, normal things that happen with perimenopause, but if it's affecting your quality of life, then it's not okay. And it's not normal. And especially if, you know, Oftentimes with that vaginal dryness and that lack of estrogen, there's a lack of collagen production in the vagina. The cells become thin, the tissue becomes thinner. It tears more easily. So penetrative intercourse becomes really painful and they'll even have discomfort at baseline. And these are things that should be addressed. And even if you don't want, you know, systemic hormone therapy and you don't want any of those things, there are plenty of options that work locally on just making the vaginal tissue healthier. Okay. Um, follow-up question to the perimenopausal state. Do you think that women in perimenopause, if they're having some symptoms would benefit, um, from a progesterone supplement? 
or clean. Yeah, for, for some women, absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, progesterone alone can be really beneficial for a while for women. Is there a, I've heard about like the golden window for estrogen therapy after menopause, like maybe 10 years. Yeah. Is there a, a window for progesterone where you want, you might not want to take it for too long or have you read anything about that? No, it's really only for estrogen therapy and, uh, and yes, you're right. You know, wanting to start it or initiate it within 10 years of menopause. Okay. So, and that it is estrogen therapy. So just to kind of clarify anyone listening, so within 10 years of going through menopause, so you haven't had a period for a year, that's kind of when you're at menopause. So that date plus 10 years is that golden window for estrogen therapy. And then can you describe some of the benefits for someone who's who it's appropriate for? Because it might not be appropriate for everyone. What are the benefits of that estrogen therapy? Yeah, I mean, so obviously first and foremost is that it manages the symptoms of menopause, right? So it's going to help with the brain fog, with the hot flashes, with the night sweats, um, with the dry skin, with the achy joints. And then what studies have shown actually is that it is, we know that we know that estrogen is cardioprotective. That's one of the benefits of estrogen. And when you even go back and you compare women before the age of say 55, right, that's kind of looking at a menopausal type of woman, um, men are at higher risk, right, of cardiovascular disease, heart attacks, and women are at lower risk. And then 55 and on, the number one killer for women is heart disease, right? Because they no longer have that estrogen component. So estrogen is cardioprotective and getting menopause hormone therapy being estrogen will actually be prevent against heart disease and be cardioprotective as well. It's also um, decreases the risk of osteoporosis to use estrogen therapy. It also decreases the risk of colon cancer to use estrogen therapy. And if you initiate it again within the 10 years, there's data that demonstrates it decreases the risk of dementia and Alzheimer's. Yep. Those are kind of all the things that I've heard from other experts and just from, from research. I'm glad that you emphasize those. I'm just thinking through someone in perimenopause who's struggling with sleep. Um, I personally gave up caffeinated coffee and I say gave up and I mean it like, <laughs> I just love my coffee. I do decaf. Um, I do caffeinated tea, some beverages, but I try to be mindful of the timing and the amount. Um, I don't have it often, but I think that's really overlooked just the basic sleep hygiene in perimenopause, especially as your progesterone is going down, perhaps you're noticing increased difficulty with sleep, increased anxiety. Um, I read on the website or one of your interviews that you're an advocate of blue light blockers as well. That's a go-to line of defense for mine as is reducing or eliminating caffeine. Do you have any other recommendations for someone who's struggling with insomnia or sleep difficulty or improving their sleep that perhaps isn't medication related? Yeah. So for, for perimenopause, the issues with sleep are actually a couple of different issues. So yes, the lack of progesterone and not having that GABA receptor activation, but then also obviously a lot of women have night sweats. So night sweats are waking them up and causing that issue. And then the kind of third component to it, well, there's two more actually anxiety is heightened during this time too, with the lack of progesterone. Um, and the fourth component is elevation in cortisol that happens with the estrogen declining. So a lot of women are having these cortisol spikes at night. So good sleep hygiene is first and foremost, right? So prepping yourself for success. Um, and yes, there is like absolutely no light in my bedroom. My bedroom is pitch black at night and my temperature of my bedroom is 68 degrees. 
And that's how I go to bed. And I'm someone who had insomnia my entire life. So this was a big focus for me to really optimize for myself. Um, and having a set routine. I do, I've said this before, and I'll say this again. We are so good with how we treat our children, right? When they're babies and how we set up this beautiful, like sleep routine, all of us, right? And it varies what you do, but why don't we do that for ourselves? (laughs) Why not? You need a sleep routine. So, you know, say go to sleep the same time every night as much as possible, right? Everyone has a night here and there where life happens, but really setting up just like you do for a child, right? It goes at the same time every single night, preparation for your body leading up to it, right? So, you know, dimming the lights a hundred percent, right? Really avoiding those devices, um, blue light blockers. If you're watching TV or you really do need to, I don't know, watch your phone for some reason, at least using those um, lowering the temperature at night, or at least in your bedroom, but in your house in general is going to kind of really, um, kick in those circadian rhythms too, for you. And, um, you know, doing things leading up to bedtime that are relaxing to you and whether that's reading or whether that's listening to music or whether that's meditating or whether that's taking a bath, that's completely personalized, but having this sort of set routine is going to gear you up for success in perimenopause specifically, there are tools and you could use to really help navigate the night sweats. If you don't want to be on hormones, there are tons of supplements. Actually, some have good data behind them. Many don't that can be used to help navigate those night sweats and or using tools, right? So using even a fan using, um, there are these pads you can put on your side of the bed that are, that are cold. Uh, Mm -hmm. if you don't want to use a fan or if your partner is freaking out because the air conditioning is pumped up that you can use as well. And then having a good stress management still again, during this time. So you navigate those cortisol spikes and sometimes even, yes, again, using botanicals and using certain adaptogens at nighttime to really help. I do recommend for basically everybody magnesium, Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, and in general, I would say that if you don't have, you know, constipation or frequent headaches, then magnesium glycinate is a great option. It's, it's very bioavailable. If you're someone who also during this time, which is common with, um, perimenopause, you're having worsening of your migraines or headaches, then go for magnesium L3 and A because it crosses the blood brain barrier. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really important distinction. There are several types of magnesium. So thank you for clarifying that. The other thing I thought about was alcohol. Um, And I think a lot of women have a reduced tolerance to alcohol in this phase of life. Um, We've talked to people before on the podcast about how your gut health changes and you're just less capable to metabolize that. And then how certain people might become sensitive to dairy or sensitive to gluten in this phase of their life. But my next question, and if you don't know, that's okay, but I Mm -hmm. feel like some women struggle falling asleep and then Mm -hmm. some women really struggle with staying asleep and they'll wake up at like two or 3am and then they have a hard time going back to sleep. Have you noticed anything in your own life or in your practice with this two to 3am awakening and what people can do about that? Yeah. So, um, I do have a working theory on that. I do think that oftentimes that two between two and 4 a.m. wake up is often um, initiated by uh, cortisol elevation. Um, so how do they shift that curve to be at the appropriate time of day to wake them up? Yeah, so sometimes using adaptogens are really, really helpful. Um, and 
those are kind of the go-tos. I oftentimes for those women will use adaptogens, but also if they navigate sort of their stress management or they implement a good stress management practice before bed. And again, whether it's, you know, guided imagery or meditation um, or a nighttime yoga, something that leads them or you are bath. If, if you don't want to do anything and you just want, <laughs> you want it done to you, then take a bath. Mm-hmm. Um, but that does help kind of calm everything down leading into it. And you've mentioned adaptogens a couple of times, uh, a couple of times during this interview, I forgot to pause and ask you to explain what adaptogens are. Oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> but that's okay. Can you go ahead and explain that and then maybe give some of your top adaptogen recommendations? Yeah. I mean, adaptogens are great. So the nice thing about adaptogens is that they are, you know, um, they are, they're not a vitamin and they're not really a supplement. You're not giving your body this and utilizing this. It's not like taking vitamin D, right? A lot of them are Ayurvedic and etiology, um, herbs, botanicals that are used and how they work is that they kind of just support, they support your adrenal system. They help you navigate kind of the stress day to day. And it's really important to kind of work with somebody who's really knowledgeable about adaptogens because the different adaptogens have different functions. And this is just an example. And, um, but you know, certain adaptogens like, um, well, holy basil is an adaptogen, ashwagandha, rhodiola, shisandra, licorice. There's so many of them, but certain ones actually are better about if, if energy is an issue for you and really you have that low cortisol production or low focus brain fog, then you may, right, consider something like holy basil or rhodiola um, to, to help in that capacity and support kind of producing more cortisol and having a healthier response to it. If it's more about having high cortisol and you need to kind of calm down, then uh, an example that's very well known is ashwagandha. Mm-hmm. And but you really do want to work with somebody who knows your adaptogens and kind of really can zero in on, on your particular symptoms. And adaptogens can be used for a certain period of life. They can be implemented during certain periods in your life, like stressful time periods and so on. Or you can use them ongoingly in your life to really help kind of give that extra assistance and extra help to make the bumps in the road a little bit easier. Yeah. Thanks for clarifying that and offering a couple of those examples. Um, the last thing that I wanted to touch on, and then if you have anything else, that's great too, is the painful intercourse. You kind of mentioned why that happens. What are the treatment suggestions that you have if someone's having that uh, vaginal dryness um, and then painful intercourse? Yeah. So there's different causes of painful intercourse, but I'm going to focus in more on it due to, to late perimenopause or menopause or postmenopause. And in that situation, obviously it's that lack of estrogen that's really causing the symptoms for women. Um, really all women can use vaginal hormones, vaginal estrogen or vaginal DHEA, which is kind of a newer one that's in the market uh, for treatment of, we call it vaginal atrophy. And the reason why is that, you know, it does not elevate the blood levels of your hormones. It works really, really locally to help make the tissue healthier and to give the tissue its estrogen back. Even DHEA, as I mentioned, converts to estrogen too. Um, as well as testosterone. And it helps with the health of the tissue in general without elevating the blood levels. So you're not having, you know, elevated estrogen coursing through your body. Um, But for some women, they actually still feel uncomfortable using vaginal hormones. And in that situation, you do need kind of a routine, right? You need your in the moment routine, right? If you're going to have penetrative intercourse and you need your skincare routine, right? You're going to do also in regards to just keeping the health of the vaginal tissue. 
So if you're someone who really doesn't feel comfortable with vaginal hormones, another option actually is there's on the market, hyaluronic acid products, right? One of the issues in regards to dropping down of estrogen in the vagina is that hyaluronic acid drops down too. So you're not pulling water into those cells anymore. And so you can just use hyaluronic acid and there's plenty of them on the market. If you really are someone who wants complete, complete, complete natural and really to avoid anything like that, then there are really natural options too. You can use coconut oil. And you can keep coconut oil in your fridge, right? Because it solidifies in in uh, cooler temperatures, and you know, put a little bit up inside the vagina, and it'll melt and actually de- um, disseminate that way. Interesting. Okay, I haven't heard of either of those actually. So thank you for sharing that. Um, before we wrap it up here, we just have a few minutes left. Is there anything else that you wanted to share about perimenopause or menopause symptoms or treatment? So much, but. <laughs> I know. But, but um, hopefully we touched on enough at least to get it going. Um, I think that it's so important to to find somebody who is really knowledgeable about perimenopause and menopause if you're navigating symptoms. I think that um, unfortunately there's a lot of misinformation out there and they're still kind of living under that um, concern regarding the Women's Health Initiative. But even that being said, even if hormones are not your thing, there are so many alternative options and management to help navigate the symptoms. So, so see somebody, talk to somebody and see somebody who's really knowledgeable about it. Yeah. Thank you. And we'll be sure to link up your website. I talked to a lot of people. I can always tell who really, really knows their stuff. I mean, I usually have those people on the podcast. Um, so thank you for sharing your knowledge and expertise with us today. Um, can you let people know how to, how they can contact you or where they can learn more about you? Yeah. So my website is www.taramd.com and we're on Instagram um, at TaraMD, the number four women. Okay. And then I have one quick question. Why yeah. did Tara, why did you choose that name for your business? Ah. <laughs> Cause I was a strange bird. I actually double majored in pre-medical sciences, obviously, and religion. Um, mm-hmm. and I was, I was just obsessed with Buddhism. So, um, Tara is after the goddess Buddhist Tara. Awesome. Okay. I had to ask, I know there's <laughs> a story behind that. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Fenske. It was a delight to speak with you and I can't wait for this episode to go out. If you got value from today's episode, please be sure that you share it with a friend who's experiencing some of the symptoms that we discussed today. All right. We'll talk with you again soon. Thanks for listening to the Reshape Your Health podcast today. To learn more about Zivli, our online course and coaching program to reverse insulin resistance for long-term weight loss and disease prevention, check out our website at www.zivli.com. That's Z-I-V-L-I.com. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a rating and review on your listening platform and share it with a friend. I'll talk with you at the same time, same place next week. Bye for now.